Ah, I missed the time there. I'm 10 seconds late. I'm Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition, and we welcome your participation today. We're going to be studying the book of Hebrews. With me is Chase Byers, as usual, from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Chase. Good afternoon, Jeff. It's good to be on today. Joe's not with us today. He is otherwise occupied. Lord willing, we'll see him back next week. Chase, I've got an idea. Let's do mm -hmm. things a little differently today. <clears throat> and okay. Drew, you may, you may want to be heads up. We should have talked about this, but we're just going to do this. Um, the screen that opens up says, um, I don't know, something about live call in chat, whatever. We'll, we'll take calls today. Uh, so we're going to put them on the air, but we're going to be covering the book of Hebrews. And we're going to try to cover the entire book of Hebrews in 45 minutes, which means we got to get started into it pretty quickly. So here's what I ask. If you call in and you want to actually talk with us, be sure that your question or comment is related to the book of Hebrews and hopefully to the section of the book of Hebrews that we're talking about at the moment, because we're going to have to progress through. And one of the things we want to see, Chase, is the logical flow of the book. So if we're in chapter two and somebody's got a comment or a question about chapter 11, we can't jump over there and maintain that understanding of the logical flow. So if, if it's not pertaining to what we're doing right then, then we're going to have to put it off or, or may not get to it at all. But we'll try that. So let's jump into the book of Hebrews. Of course, Chase, the book of Hebrews is called Hebrews. Why do we call it Hebrews? It's predominantly from what we've been looking at in the entire book written to Jewish Christians, people who come from the Hebrew faith, as the yeah. Old Testament calls them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the evidence that they're not just Jews, but they're Jewish Christians, they're believers, uh, we see in various places in, in the letter. Uh, what jumps out in your mind is as a passage that you turn to show this is talking to Jews who are believers. Uh, I'd probably look over at chapter 10 in verse 32. Um, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches, tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're not only Jewish believers, they've been enlightened, but they're also, they're, they've been persecuted. They're persecuted Jewish Christians. Yeah. And that, that's going to be important. Um, in chapter three, we have him saying to the readers, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest mm -hmm. of our confession even Jesus. So yeah, verse four, verse 14 as well, partakers of Christ. There you go. All right. Yeah. So it's written to Jewish believers, but one of the things that, that we see in the letter, it's written to Jewish believers who tend to, or maybe tending to have too much of an allegiance to the forms of worship under the old law and have not made enough progress in understanding uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ such that no longer do they need the Levitical priesthood, for example. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, and uh, in terms of when it's written, it's kind of relevant because one of the reasons that uh, many Jewish believers were still participating in some forms of the Jewish religion uh, as revealed through Moses is because the temple was still standing up until AD 70. And so they became Christians. They didn't think of themselves as leaving one religion to join another. They thought of themselves as seeing the fulfillment of what they had in the law of Moses. And that's a proper way to think of it. But in thinking of it that way, they continued to go down to the temple and they continued to participate in some of the sacrificial rituals of the old law. 
with the assistance of the Levitical priests. And apparently this is written in the 60s, shortly before AD 70, when all that's going to go away because the temple is going to be destroyed. And they need to, to get their heads around the fact that they don't need that system anymore because they've got it all in Christ and better. Okay. I will say one other perspective I, I've liked or enjoyed looking at the book from isn't not only the, the temptation to maybe turn back to Judaism and put your trust in it, but just the struggle to turn your back on Christ altogether. Um, if you go back to Judaism, you're settling for something that is not near as great as you have it in Jesus Christ. And after he presents his argument on why Jesus is so much better, they would be fools to consider doing literally anything else, including going back to Judaism. Yeah. And so that's, that's a, I think, another perspective yeah. you can look at it from. Yeah, good, 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 good. All right, so <clears throat> the first chapter, um, it, he starts out talking about how God spoke in different ways in past times, but now he's spoken through his son. And his point is going to be to exalt the son and show that the son of God is a far greater messenger than anybody else. In chapter one in particular, he points out that the son is a greater messenger than whom or what? The angels. Yeah, he's far better than the, mes uh, than the message that the, even the angels have. And I, I think that's such a cool point. And the, the reason being, I've always, I'd always kind of overlooked that in chapter one. I've always thought, oh, he's saying that Jesus is better than the angels, and that's as far as it goes. No, I think his point is, not only is Jesus better than the angels, he has a better message than the angels had. Yeah. Yeah. in chapter two. And so that's a cool connection to see. And, and, the, and the message is because the angels were the medium through which the old law, that message was mm -hmm. delivered. And Jesus is the deliverer of the new covenant. And so if he's greater than the angels, then his message is greater. Good, good point. So we, we could take a moment to belabor that. Let's not. Let's get right on to, to chapter two, where we see a therefore. So once he's mm -hmm. shown that the that Jesus is greater than the angels he says therefore in chapter 2 verse 1 we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard lest happily lest perhaps we drift away from them to your point chase that they 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 shouldn't drift away but verse 2 he says for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every dis and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's break that down. He says, if the word spoken through angels, basically what he's saying is, if the word spoken through angels was something we were held accountable for, we got punished if we disobeyed it. What was the word spoken through angels? The law, the Old Testament. Where in the Bible would we go to show that? Um, that the that the old law was the um that it was, spoken was what's through in angels. mind here yeah that it was spoken through angels the three places question. that come to my mind acts chapter 7 and uh first of all in verse 35 uh, it mentions the burning bush and it says uh, moses whom they refused saying who made thee a ruler and a judge him has god sent to be both a ruler and deliverer with the hand of the angel that appeared to him in the bush. But that's not all. Come down to verse 38. This is he talking about Moses that was in the church in the wilderness, the assembly of Israel, with the angel that spoke to him in the Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. We remember Moses going up Mount Sinai to get the law. Here it specifies it was an angel through whom God spoke to Moses. 
And then we come to chapter 7 and verse 52, and uh, verse 53, rather. Acts chapter 7, verse 53. You who received the law as it was ordained by angels, mm-hmm. kept it not. And then finally, Galatians chapter 3. three. Yeah. yeah. You got it? Yeah, Galatians 3, verse 19. Yep. Uh, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been Oftentimes, made. Oftentimes, the Bible will talk about God doing this or that, saying this or that. Uh, and then later on, or in some other context, we'll find out he did it by the agency of someone. Uh, yeah. If the president of the United States uh, drops a bomb on some city in some foreign country, he wasn't in the airplane. He didn't pull the trigger. Uh, he gave orders to have it done. But we'll say the president of the United States bombed such and such a place. Well, right. I, maybe that's not the best illustration, but it gets to the job done. God does things, and he does things in various ways. For the writer's point in the book of Hebrews, it's important to point out the law he gave through angels, but now he's spoken through Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. So if we were accountable for the law that was spoken through angels, you better believe we'd better listen to what was spoken through Jesus. Anything else you want to mm-hmm. say up to verse 4 of chapter 2? I just want to say this idea, be, pay close attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. That's a theme throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, it where he's basically, he's going to tell them to listen up. If we don't want to drift away, it's an intentional anchoring that has to happen. I've been fishing many times, and if we don't set that anchor intentionally, we drift away. We look up 30 minutes later, we're halfway on the other side of the lake, and we don't even realize it. Yep. And so yep. to listen to Jesus is an intentional thing that he's encouraging them to do. Now, starting in in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, For not unto angels did he subject the world to come, whereof we speak. He starts talking about things being subjected, not to angels, but to man. He's going to quote the 8th Psalm. And in the 8th Psalm, you know, David says, and I'm reading it as it's quoted here in Hebrews, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? This is an older translation. means that you care for him. What is man or the son of man? In the Hebrew poetry, where you say things twice in different ways, those two things mean the same thing. Man, son of man. You think about the vastness of God's creation. And it's amazing God even thinks about us. But the writer, David, of that psalm, Psalm 8, goes ahead and say, but God does think about us. And he's exalted man so that everything is under man's rule. And so the, the writer of Hebrews picks up with that. And, and emphasizes it for the purpose of calling an attention, calling attention to an apparent exception. In verse uh, eight, middle of the verse, for in that he subjected all things to him, he left nothing that's not subject to him. So he makes it emphatic. Look, everything's subjected to me. But then in verse nine, but, but, mm-hmm. actually it's the middle of verse eight, but, now we see not yet all things subjected to him. So what does he go on to show has not yet been fully subjected to man? God said he's put everything under man's foot, but there's one thing, man's dominion over it is not yet fully realized. What is that? Uh, would it be the earth? Nope, 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 nope. Are you looking at death? Death, death. Okay. Yeah. And so, but then there's another but. There's one man through whom even death has been conquered, and that's Jesus. And he goes on to make the point 
that Jesus had to become flesh and blood so that he could conquer death. This is going to be verse 13. Again, uh, verse 14. Since then, the children are sharers in flesh and blood. Since, since we all human beings share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself, in like manner, had to partake of the same flesh and blood, had to become human. That, through death, he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So everything's been subjected to man, but up to this point, man's still dying. So here comes Jesus as a man so that he can conquer death by being raised from the dead and thus taking the power away from Satan. And then, uh, Chase, how about we get verses um, 15 through uh, 16? Yeah, it says, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. All right, so um, he takes away the fear of death so that now man is over everything, including death, in Christ. That, that verse, just for what it's worth, getting the weeds a little bit here, shouldn't do this because I'm going to lose time, but verse uh, 16, for verily mm -hmm. not to angels doth he give help. There's another way that could be translated. And the way it could also be translated is because uh, death has not taken hold of angels. And without going into why, why it could be translated both ways, that, that kind of fits as, as well. Maybe it's even a little bit more easy to understand the flow. He's giving help to man because everything's been put under the feet of man, except death is not yet fully subjected to man. Death isn't a problem for angels. So Jesus has come to give help to man. That's, that may be what he's saying there. In any event, he goes on in the rest of chapter two to say, in becoming human, flesh and blood like we are, and dying like we die, he goes through what we go through so that he can be a more understanding and compassionate high priest. What's mm -hmm. the basic job of a priest? They're mediator, intercessor to God. Yeah, and if somebody's going to inter be mediate on my behalf, be an intercessor between me and God, it needs to be somebody who understands what I go through. So Jesus yeah. becomes flesh and blood so that he can. That's that, chapter two. Yeah, exactly. And that, that really anticipates the rest of the book because this will be something he entertains later in chapter seven and eight, the insufficiency that a human priest would have, their inability to sympathize or be able to approach the throne of God because they have just as much sin as I do. So it's right. kind of cool how this is the first mention of the high priest, but that's really going to carry throughout the rest of the, right. the book. And it's kind of a yeah. development. He starts out showing that Jesus is able to be a, a high priest. He's able to be a good priest. And then he's going to later on come back to it and say, as a matter of fact, he's a far better high priest than the Levit mm -hmm. Levitical priests. Yeah, and according to the order of Melchizedek, and we'll get in that, into that in just a, a little bit. Uh, we're um, already behind time, so if we're going to get there, I guess we've got to move. Chapter 3, he now talks about somebody else uh, with whom Jesus is compared. And again, Moses. Jesus, that's right, Moses. So both the man Moses who gave the law and the angels through whom the law was given to Moses, Jesus is greater than both of them. And so then... Uh, this exalted understanding of Jesus, then, as you said earlier, should lead us to an understanding of the exalted status of his message. Mm -hmm. The latter half of chapter three, having turned his attention to Moses, he begins talking about the nation of Israel and what happened to them in the days of Moses. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, he uses Psalm 95 to kind of give a brief summary of what their time was like in the wilderness. And so just looking at verse eight, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Your fathers tried me, tested me, saw my works for 40 years. And I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And this quote from Psalm 95 summed up the generation of the Israelites that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But the Hebrew writer is going to carry that into the rest of three and into four to make the application that we need to take heed. Yeah. Lest we also fall. Yeah. Do not die in the wilderness like they did, but rather obey so that you can get to your rest. Yeah. And what is that rest, you might ask? That'll get into chapter four. Yeah, so he characterizes their problem as a lack of faith. And because of their lack of faith, they never got to their promised land. And so as you say, when we get to chapter four, he makes it clear there's a promised land or a rest for us. And we need to look at the negative example of the Israelites, not make the same mistake, not be lacking in faith, or we won't get to our promised land, which would be what? Mm -hmm. It would be, at least I think, being with the Lord in heaven. Yeah, sure. And so then, so making progress here, we come down to verse 14. And so he comes back to the idea of Jesus as our high priest. It's almost like in, the, in chapters three and four, he took a little detour to really talk about this faith problem, which he's going to come back to. Yeah. And he does this a couple other times in Hebrews where he'll, it's not really a sidetrack, but it's like, by the way, I really need to iron this out before we understand. Exactly. This. Exactly. He's do it again in five. So now he comes back to the idea of Jesus as our high priest, which he had introduced mm -hmm. back at the end of chapter two. And he says in verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14, having then a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Well, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that has been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Back to that idea that Jesus can understand what we go through. He can be a sympathetic high priest because he's been tested, tempted in all the ways we have, though he did not sin. And verse 16, <clears throat> encouraging verse, let us therefore draw near with boldness. Mm -hmm. like that's armor. another thing. Yep, he'll talk about that several more times, this idea of drawing near with a lot of confidence to the throne uh, because of what we have in Jesus Christ. And, and because Jesus in his humanity is very sympathetic to us. And mm -hmm. so there you go. Now, in chapter five, we get into the first few verses here, and he's going to take a, an almost um, clinical, uh, technical approach. And he's going to say, all right, let's look at what the requirements are for a priest. And basically, yeah. He's got to be somebody who's a man, and he's got right. to be somebody who's appointed by God. You, you can't be somebody who just volunteers, says, I'll be a priest. No, it's got to be appointed by God, but it has to be a man. And so that's so, what he says in verse one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and so that naturally switches into, all right, well, there's two priesthoods that we can see in the Old Testament, and the first is the Aaronic priesthood. And that's kind of like a further breakdown he gives in verses one through four. Um, you have to be from the tribe of Levi in order to come from the Iran or be an Aaronic priest, basically. And so he makes the point that um, Jesus meets both of these qualifications. Right. He, he's appointed by God. Uh, verse five, Christ also glorified not himself to be made high priest, but he that spoke unto him. And then he quotes from Psalm two and Psalm four. I mean, Psalm two and Psalm 110. 
And when he quotes from Psalm 110 to make the point that Jesus was appointed by God, he quotes the phrase, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which gets to this other priesthood. And that's going to be full of information. But before he goes there, he's now shown Jesus was appointed by God. He's going to show, and he's a man, a man who suffered like we suffer. And so that's in the language of verse seven and following, who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. And having been heard for his godly fear, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Mm -hmm. So it's again, he's a man. He suffered what we suffer. He can be a sympathetic high priest. But he didn't just volu- he didn't just take this on himself. He's appointed by God. So chapter five doesn't yet say that his priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Chapter five says he meets the requirements of being a priest, right. just as the Levitical priest did. And there's a lot of cool implications that need to be pulled from that. But he recognizes in these Hebrew Christians a weakness that's keeping them from better understanding what he's about to talk about. And so that's why in verse 11, he'll say concerning him, that's talking about Melchizedek, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And I think that that word dull of hearing, doing some research on that, it's fascinating. I think it's literally, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, the idea of being lazy, because it's the same word in chapter six and verse 12 for sluggish. And so that's why you get some translations like the CSB that uh-huh. translates that since you've become too lazy to understand. Yeah, well, he does. Clearly put this, he puts this on them because he says, you ought to be teachers by now. Right, you're not. exactly. You're, you're still yeah. needing to be fed the, the baby food, the milk of the word. So he's, and he's so go ahead. I was just going to, yeah. And so this is just a, a, another pit stop for him where he's going to give them some rebuke and warning yeah. and also some exhortation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We take a little detour here. Because he's mentioned in saying that Jesus was appointed by God, he quoted the passage that says he was a priest appointed as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now he wants to talk about that in Melchizedek, what that's all about. But before he can do that, he says, you guys aren't going to get this. You got to have a hard time getting this because you haven't yeah. grown to the point in understanding that you ought to. And so like you say, chapter six, all the way down through, really down through uh, the end of the chapter is kind mm-hmm. of an admonition to, for them to get on the stick and, and do better. And he's confident they will. Verse 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and, and the love which you showed toward his name and that you ministered unto the saints and still do minister. So he's not writing these people off. And he believes they will make progress and do better. And they've had a good history of serving the saints, but they, they need to work more on their understanding. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I think that's right. And then we come to chapter seven and he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you about Melchizedek. And so we come to chapter seven in verse one and Chase, this goes back to a story in the book of Genesis, doesn't it? Yeah. All the way back to Genesis chapter 14, actually. Yeah. So there we have Abraham's nephew, Lot, uh, having got, gotten caught up in a war. There were, there were, there were five Kings that had been paying tribute to, a king named Keterleomer, and, and then after 12 years paying tribute to him, they quit. And so Keterleomer is coming with his allies, so four mm-hmm. kings, Keterleomer and three others, come and attack the five kings that had quit paying tribute. Among those five kings was the king of Sodom, which is where Lot had ended up living. So when Keterleomer defeats the five kings, he plunders them, 
And not only does he take the goods, he also takes the people, presumably for slaves. So here goes Lot and his family into slavery. And Abraham hears about it. And he comes and defeats Keterleomer using men born in his house, his own servants. And he defeats Keterleomer, rescues Lot, and he's on his way home with the plunder when he meets whom? He meets this guy named Melchizedek, who is described as priest of God Most High. Yeah, priest of God Most High. There's, there's no Levitical priesthood yet. There's no, there are no Levites yet. There, Levi is a great-grandson of Abraham. Yeah. So and he's Levi in theory, but he's not there. Yeah, 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 yeah. But here's a guy who's a priest of, most, of God Most High. Not only is he a priest of God Most High, he's also what? He's also a king. Yeah, king of a city called Salem. He's not one of the kings that was involved in the battle. And yet it turns out that, that we need to know the story of the battle, not because of the battle itself and not because of the four kings or the five kings, but to understand the place of Melchizedek. Because Abraham, with this plunder, which never had belonged to Melchizedek, gives 10% of it to Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. That kind of says this guy ranks, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's the point the Hebrew writer is going to make in chapter seven. Abraham is paying tithes to him. Um, and it's so funny because a little bit later, whenever the Levitical priesthood is set up, tithes are being paid to the Levitical priesthood. Yeah. But because they're in the loins of Abraham still, it's really going to be them, the Levitical priesthood, that's paying tithes to Melchizedek. That's right. Which, again, shows how his priesthood is better than their priesthood. That's right. That's right. So... So all that say Abraham out, I mean, Melchizedek outranks Abraham. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and of course, he makes the point, the similar point by saying this guy blessed Abraham and it's the greater right. who blesses the lesser. Now, there's some parallels that he highlights between Melchizedek and Jesus. You want to name right. a couple of them? Yeah. So for starters, um, you have the fact that king of Salem, that word Salem is the idea of peace, meaning mm -hmm. king of peace. And right. Jesus, we know, is referred to as the prince of peace. And so right. there's one obvious uh, one from the get-go. There's also just the idea of being a king is something that is uh, true of Jesus as well, yeah. as he's yeah. the king of his kingdom. And then and then the probably a title rather than a personal name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So you've got this guy, he's a king, and he's king of peace and righteousness. And if we want to think about the ultimate king of peace and righteousness, that's Jesus. And yet here's right. this character back here, Melchizedek, who makes you think of king of peace and king of righteousness. Also, Chase, we know who Abraham's father was. We know who Isaac's father and mother were. We have records of his death and his birth, and, his, and Jacob's his death and his birth, and Joseph his death and his birth. And actually, we can go from Adam to Joseph, and we can find how long every one of those people lived, and we can find who every one of those fathers was. But this Melchizedek, he just pops into the story of the right. book of Genesis with no record of his family, no record of his birth. And, and after the story's over, no record of his death. It's just like right. he just exists. And so you have the language in verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy. The Levitical mm -hmm. priests had to have a genealogy tracing their line back to Aaron. But, but this guy didn't need a genealogy to be a priest of God Most High, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the key right there. So you have all those physical things, king of peace, all that stuff that goes into play. 
But really, I think the Hebrew writer's point here is there is this infinality of, of the Melchizedek priesthood that is true of Jesus as well. There's really no beginning nor end to it. And there was really no beginning or end to Jesus either. And that's discussed in verses 15, really down to verse 17 as well. Yeah, uh, which is just super cool. It's the idea of Jesus having this indestructible life. There is no beginning or end to it. it. It has always been. Now, from our understanding, Jesus was born as a man and he did die a death, but we know he rose again. And Colossians right. talks about Jesus being there from the very beginning. And so there's that infinality we're looking for. Exactly, exactly. So he started out saying Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now he's shown the connections the typical connections, the, the uh, what's the word I want? Can't even think of the word I want. But anyway, the parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus. And he's shown this Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, which makes him greater than the Levitical priests. And Jesus is a priest after this guy's order. So that's going to make Jesus greater than the Levitical priests. Now, we come down to verses 11 and following, and he spends a few minutes to say, if we're going to have a priest who's not from the Levitical line, and then the law must have changed. And in saying the law has changed, he's going to make the point that the law did not make anything perfect. That is, it didn't make anyone perfect. It didn't take away your sin. It pointed to Christ, who's going to take away the sin. But the law didn't get it done. And the priests under the law, they kept having to offer the same sacrifices over and over and over because they weren't in and of themselves, ultimately, the means of taking away sin. But Jesus comes, and as the language is, is used in verse 27, he does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But this he did once for all. So he makes one sacrifice for all people for all time that takes away sin, gets the job done. So he doesn't have to keep making that sacrifice. And of course, that sacrifice is what? It's Jesus's ultimate sacrifice, his death on the cross is is the once and for all sacrifice. And as we kind of leave chapter seven and get into chapter eight, someone pointed this out to me once. I thought this was cool. Chapter eight, verse one. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's a pretty good summary of what was talked about in chapter seven. That's right. And then in and then in verse two. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Well, that's really looking forward to chapter 9. And then verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Well, that's really looking forward to chapter 10, where a more full treatment of this once and for all sacrifice of Jesus is discussed. That's right. And I like I like your your anticipation. You recognize the writer is anticipating what he's going to say in those chapters. Verse 4 is talking about those who serve that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. If you're going to go down to the temple and you're going to worship down at the temple and offer those animal sacrifices, that's just a copy and a shadow of the things. And he, he alludes, he refers to, he actually quotes from Exodus, the 25th chapter, where God told yeah. Moses to make the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle according to the pattern. And, and the, the implication there is God meant for the, the tabernacle and its furnishings and their layout and all of that to be, to be a, a, a 
a model or not a model, but to represent some spiritual realities. But the tabernacle itself was a copy, not the real thing. It was a shadow. And so he's going to talk about the real thing shortly. But before that, he now makes the point that this covenant that Jesus has made, the new covenant, is a better covenant because, after all, Jeremiah 31, the prophet, God speaking through the prophet, had mm -hmm. argued that God was going to make a new covenant and it wouldn't be like the first covenant. Um, in, in Under the new covenant, the sin yeah. is taken away and God remembers it no more. It, yeah, I mean, there's just a laundry list of awesome things that were going to happen in this new covenant that that passage from Jeremiah 31 covers up. The unity in God's people, it's going to be different. They're going to know the Lord, but ultimately God's going to forgive their sins. So yeah. we could spend the whole podcast just going through those we, different we could, aspects. It's tempting it. to, it's tempting to, but for our yeah. purposes, I guess we'll move on. Uh, so he, he ends up after quoting that passage in Jeremiah 31, saying uh, in verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he made the first old, but that which is becoming old and waxes aged is nigh and vanishing away. So when Jeremiah said, God's going to make a new covenant, from that moment, that old covenant is nigh and vanishing away. Uh, mm -hmm. That old covenant is, is, is obsolete. And so the new covenant. So then he, we get to chapter nine and he draws, first of all, before a contrast, a parallel, some parallels between the first covenant and the second covenant but they both have ordinances and yeah. he goes through and he talks about the furnishings of the tabernacle which is interesting because they have the temple but he chooses to use the tabernacle i've yeah. always found that very very fascinating yeah that's right that's right yeah although for purposes um well, I, I, I almost went down a rabbit. Let's let's get back on track here. We, we got we got more more Hebrews to go through. So, so yeah. as he talks about the furnishings, he he alludes to the idea that they all have some meaning when he says in verse six. Now these things have having been thus prepared, the priests going continually. No, 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 no. Verse five at the end of verse five, mm -hmm. of there which things we cannot now speak separately. We can't talk, take right. time to talk about each of these individually, he says. We, we're feeling rushed today. The Hebrew writer was feeling rushed when he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, no kidding. So um, so he says, but he's going to talk about one thing. And that is the idea that the high priest was the only one who could go into the most holy place, the second room mm -hmm. of the tabernacle. In fact, nobody else could go, and even the high priest couldn't go anytime at all, except one day of the year. Mm-hmm. And he's yep, on the Day of Atonement. Yep. The Day of Atonement, that's right. Uh, Yom Kippur, if you've heard of that, to our, our, our listening audience. And, and he's going to say there was meaning in that. There was meaning in all these furnishings of the tabernacle, but there was meaning in the idea that nobody could go into the most holy place. Well, except the high priest, that so he could only go one day a year. What was the meaning in that? It's down in verse 8. The Holy Spirit was signifying the way into the holy place has not yet been made manifest. So that's where the presence of God is, but the way there is not yet manifest. What does that mean? Go ahead. You oh. Well, I was just going to say, this is super cool. In verse eight, when it says the Holy Spirit is signifying this, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, Jeff, that's a word for parable. That's a parabole symbol okay. is the idea, which All is right. really cool. But I think the idea here is that the Holy Spirit made it this way on purpose. As you're looking at these things in the Old Testament, you were able to anticipate what's going to happen in the new um and so anyways that for what that's worth it's super cool what was your question though 
Okay. Uh, okay. Just, 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 just for. Or sorry, verse nine. I apologize. Verse nine, the word verse. Nine. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Verse yeah, nine. My apologies. I said yeah. verse eight. Yeah. In the, the American Standard says, which is a figure for the time present. And that is the word parabole, which is where we get the word parable. So that is, right. that's right. Okay. All right. So, so, well, what, in what way is that a figure for the time present? Well, think about when Jesus dies on the cross and the temple that had the two rooms in it and the veil separating the two rooms. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was torn in two. Because now the way is open. Right. Because Jesus has died on the cross. He's made the sacrifice that makes it possible for us. You know, we all quote this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the truth and the life. life. No one comes to the Father, Father, but by me. Amen. So he dies on the cross. The veil is torn open. This Now the significance is, now the way is manifest. Now you can go to God through Jesus. Yes. And so, and I love this. I, I just, I love this so much uh, because what, what I think he's trying to do here is to get them to think about just how imperfect the first system was. I mean, that's right. this guy, he had this blood from an animal yeah. uh, to approach the God of the universe. Yeah. And just, I would, I would think it would be, there'd be a lot of nervousness on the part of that holy high priest as he's trying to approach God with this animal blood. What is that really going to suffice for the human or for the sin of mankind? Well, no. Wasn't but intended. Then, but when you contrast that with the blood of Jesus, which is what he's trying to do, there is an amount of confidence that you can approach the throne of God with yeah. when you have that blood of Jesus in your hand. Not arrogance, but confidence because that sacrifice. And, so and so we go back to that passage in chapter 4, verse 15. We can approach with boldness is, is parallel to what you're saying. And so then well, you get and same thing in, in chapter 10, verse 19, he'll specifically say that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you get to this point, then you realize, oh, I don't need the Levitical priest. I don't need the animal sacrifice. I don't even need that temple anymore. Jesus is the way. And Amen. so, okay. So then we come down and in verses 11 through the end of chapter nine, he talks about how the, the blood of Jesus truly cleanses um, and, you know, in the Old Testament, Moses cleansed everything with blood, but it was the blood of animals. But now we've got a sacrifice of, a, of something uh, better, uh, the blood of Jesus. And again, the point that he made this sacrifice once and for all. And that gets us to chapter 10, Chase. Yes, absolutely. And so that, that idea is going to be carried from, from there on really into um, chapter 11, as we get into the faith section of things. But Jesus had this once and for all sacrifice that gives us an amount of faith and confidence to live throughout the rest of this earth. All right, and so, we've, got a we've got a viewer who wants to make a point. And so, uh, Chase, Chase, we said we'd try to do this today. So, um, CJ, CJ Marshall is listening. And CJ, we just, we want your point to be on topic here pertaining to what, what we're talking about in Hebrews. And now we're in chapters nine and 10. That's about where we are. So let me see if I can get you in here and uh, make you able to talk. All right, CJ, go ahead. What's your point here? CJ, you're muted still. You're going to have to unmute yourself. Well, we may have to work on the technology. Hello? Hey, CJ, go ahead. Huh. So, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to say the... When you guys are talking about all these uh, things in Hebrew, 
it just makes me think of Jesus is better, you know, Jesus is like better than the angels, he's better than the old law system, so I think one of the overall themes of Hebrews will be Jesus is better than uh, the, the old law in the old system. Yeah, that's it. You're right, CJ. Thanks a lot for that. But that's that's it. And that's preparing these Jewish believers for the time when the temple is going to be gone, the Levitical system is going to be gone, but it's not going to be a great loss because they've got Jesus, whom all of that was pointing to, and Jesus is better. Thank you much. I appreciate that, CJ. All right. Uh, chapter yeah. 10, Chase. Yeah, so chapter 10, really, he's starting off by talking about how imperfect those animal sacrifices really are, just in comparison to Jesus Christ. And I, I think I would have a hard time with that, wouldn't you, Jeff? Um, you, you have this sin that you committed consciously and on purpose, and you know that you did it. And then you look over at this animal, and you have to think, somehow, this animal is going to take my place for something I consciously did. I think that was, a, that was a hard thing for people to understand and fundamentally accept. And that's why in verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take yeah. away sins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They understood this. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why is this taking place? But in Jesus, it makes sense. It, it, we understand it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a, it's, it, that is what makes us perfect. And that is what truly can take away the, the guilt and the consciousness of sin. And, and he's going to end up talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, his own body, and he's going to come back to, to uh, Jeremiah, the 31st chapter again, and, and again emphasize the fact that under the new covenant, your sins are remembered no more. You don't have to have another sacrifice because that sacrifice right. takes care of it. Which brings us to the verse you've alluded to a couple of times, verse 19. Yes, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Yeah. Um, I just, this is what he's moving to, right? This is the conclusion he's trying to get to yeah, for them. Yeah. And he borrows that language, uh, uh, heart sprinkled, uh, bodies washed. They, yes. they sprinkled the blood uh, on them and on things in the Old Testament. But now our consciences are sprinkled. Our heart is sprinkled. Um, our body is washed. I think that's an allusion to baptism. Uh, absolutely. And, yeah. and so he says then, having, having that now, verse 23, let's hold fast the confession. I think back to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, wherefore, holy brethren, particulars of heavenly calling, hold fast to uh, now you had it. How did I, I said, let me go. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. And here he says, now hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is. We need to be assembling exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. Chase, I don't know what you think about this, but I really think the day he's talking about is that day of destruction, that day of, of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They see that coming, and as that comes near, you need to not lose your faith, 
because what you need to realize is you've got something better than what's being taken away. Yeah, yeah. Persecution is in view, whether or not it's it's 80, 70. And I, I personally believe that that's definitely part of it. But persecution is in view of this entire letter so far. And so be hold on to Jesus. And I think so much of this, too, is this is the only thing you have. Why, why would you give up on the one life raft that's there? This is the only way. There's no other option to get out. Chase, why and you're would gambling be, to give it away. Why would it be necessary to urge these people to hold on to this and not to, to shrink back, uh, to not follow the example of the Israelites and losing their faith and not making it to the promised land? Why would it be necessary to do all of that if you couldn't lose your salvation? Well, that is directly contradicts what 26 through 31 talks about, isn't it? Where he talks about people who have been enlightened, people who have obeyed the gospel, falling away, um, insulting the spirit of grace, trampling underfoot the son of God. And he talks about God judging his own people in yeah, those scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's what's in view. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, well, you know what, Chase? I think we're about out of time. Um, we didn't quite get through 13 chapters. I think we did better than maybe some thought we would do. We got through most yeah. of 10. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. Thank you for watching. Those of you who watched and those of you who are listening to this is a recorded podcast hereafter. We hope that this is helpful to you. Chase, thank you for your help today. And Lord willing, we'll see everybody next week, oh, Wednesday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Okay.